Unfiltered with Matt Farnsworth. Rhonda Sawchuk, personal coach from Trouble to Transformation, Life Skills Counselor, International Coaches Federation. And she helps, uh, do you help primarily help like young men or is it just more than that? Does it go deeper than that? Oh, yes. It definitely goes much deeper than that. I have all types of clients, even teenagers. <laughs> However, I do specialize in the men's mental health arena and I want to take my practice into men's penitentiaries. That's definitely one of those places where there's going to be a lot to 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 work out. Penitentiary, there's, there's a lot of a lot of abuse, a lot of history of probably a lot of violence, a lot of neglect. Yes. Uh, to work through what what makes you want to um, to go that direction? Mm, oh, that's a good question. Well, that does go fairly deep for me. I spent probably about ten years in organized crime. And I came out of that, the other end of that, deeply morally wounded. But I also see those people as humans, as individuals who have got a lifetime of trauma. And, and, you know, and with the proper skills, I do believe that people have the ability to transform their lives. I, I didn't expect you to say that, but we, we, it seems that I have this uncanny ability to hook up with people who have either been in some criminal situation, like I myself have been in trouble, as you know, um, and, and then have transformed their life and are now helping people. Well, what is that about? That's, that's kind of, kind of a funky universal algorithm happening there. Yes. Well, I do believe in the energies, frequencies of people. What you think about, you bring about. And here we are, we're on this healing path and we want to make a difference in the world. And I think that there's definitely strength in community. Mm -hmm. So that's, and you know, and I was watching your content and you uh, do speak from true authenticity. So I definitely picked up on that as well. Yeah, so I definitely believe in here. shared experience, you know, shared experiences mm -hmm. is, is where it's at. And in terms of the healing process and from, from a, a personal coach perspective, I, when I have somebody like yourself and I, I get to, dive in and pick your brain a little bit. Um, let's dive into the topic of addiction a little bit and maybe how it starts and, and where when you work with people, where you see it starting, does, does it often like I pretty much feel that it starts in childhood? Usually it's surrounding, you know, some sort of trauma or issues that, that the person has had mixed with the predisposition for uh, alcoholism, you know, and genetically, do you find that it's happened traumatic events that cause them to go to the chemical? And then also that predisposition, if they have it, uh, causes them to develop serious addiction. Absolutely. Not everybody that has experienced childhood trauma, you know, turns to addictions, but for the majority of us, yes, a hundred percent. And Gaber Mate has this thing. It's, you know, he says it often, it's not about the addiction. Why the pain? So when people are suffering from uh, deep wounds of in, and pain from childhood trauma, we, we soothe ourselves. We want to soothe ourselves. And that usually comes in the form of addictions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course it does. That, that makes a lot of sense to me, um, is that you would have something that happened to you, you can't quite get over it. And you know, how, do I, how do I cope with this? Well, I have this amazing chemical that makes me forget all about it. But at the same time, when I use it, it also causes me tremendous anxiety. So when I don't have it, I'm recalling that 
traumatic event in an even more acute way. Yes. Uh, yes, exactly. And I'd actually kind of like to go back to the word recovery. The actual definition of recovery is returning to a normal state of health or mind. And so what are we exactly returning to? You know, our bodies might be nourished. We're not full of poisons anymore, but we're also returning to that self who still has suppressed and repressed wounding, all the unmet needs, unprocessed emotions like anger, grief, pain, guilt, shame, the inability to even know what normal is. A lot of us come from dysfunctional childhood. So this is the norm for us, that roller coaster ride. And then there's low self-esteem, feelings of being different and inadequate. And then some of us too, addicted to the excitement. So all the reasons that contributed to the addiction in the first place. Yep. Yeah, I thought about that today. I was up early and I was thinking, I posted something about having a normal life. Like, that, that's boring. Like, that would have bored old me because I was in a very fast-moving Hollywood-type life. I, if I wasn't, you know, reading for some big director at Paramount Studios, I was, I was in intense situations. And I got used to that high. It was like a high for me. But healthy? No. No, not healthy. Yeah, I, I understand where you're going with that. It's, it's crazy to have that really exciting life at one time and you get addicted to not only the chemical, but the actual lifestyle. And then when you're done and it's over and you're in recovery, like you said, which was a great definition of recovery, where do you go from there? Because if you go back to who you were, then you've still got all these complications and these issues that you never resolved in the first place. So what do we do with that? How do we take a look at that? And how do we start to heal that part of ourselves? Yes. Um, and I love talking about emotions, especially when it comes to men. Men have a really hard time being vulnerable and actually expressing their emotions. So we suppress that. And I can almost guarantee you that when we keep suppressing those emotions and all those unmet needs, it comes out in anger. Yeah, the, the emotional part of it, really. And, and at men, you were, you were getting into the idea that men do not express their emotions as much. And it's really a scary place to go, mm -hmm. to be able to say, I want to be vulnerable with you. I'm going to expose a side of myself that I normally wouldn't, and you have to have a level of trust there, I would assume, with the person that you're sharing these emotions with. How do you work somebody into that space to be able to expose those raw emotions and, and start to heal? Yeah, that's a really good question because you really do have to build a safe and sacred container when you're working with clients, especially men. Women are more likely to reach out for help. They have friends that they call. They're more likely to sign up for therapy where men always hold that in. And I think that that's generational. We've been indoctrinated for generations that men do not express their emotions because it was a sign of weakness. Even living in that life of organized crime, you know, after I got out of that, I was in the oil field for close to 20 years. So again, male dominated industry. Um, and the same thing there too, you know, being vulnerable was a sign of weakness. There's a huge stigma attached to mental health when it comes to men. And, uh, but unfortunately we're seeing the consequences of that in the statistics. 
with the addictions, with the suicide rate. So it's about time that men step up and start expressing themselves because all of that suppressed emotion generally does come out dysfunctional. It can come out in anger um, and then also with the substance abuse. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I was there in terms of my emotion. I, I grew up in the Midwest. So Kansas, Iowa, Missouri, mm. it, it very, um, they're hard people. You know, they'll jump in front of a train for you, but they're not emotional. You're not going to find a lot of emotional people uh, in, 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 the, in those places. I don't know why that is. I can't really explain why. I mean, I guess maybe the bigger cities has more of a liberal concentration of people and then, you know, they have more of a open flowing emotional conversation with each other. But it's interesting you say that because men are so, we've been trained, you're right, to not have emotion, but wouldn't it be even more of like alpha to be able to have that emotion, to share that emotion fearlessly? I'm able to communicate with you if I'm upset, I'm able to communicate versus like you're saying, it often manifests if we have an issue and we, we stuff it, it, it eventually boils over or something small happens and then anger comes out versus just communication that could have happened prior to the, the bigger event that didn't even really need to happen. Does that make sense? Oh, that totally makes sense. You know, because when we have those um, outbursts of anger, you know, and then there's going to be conflict in our relationships, conflict in our work environment, conflict amongst our peers, you know, and, and the thing is, like, it actually does bubble up into anger because if, have you ever seen the anger iceberg, what that looks like? I think so. And then underneath the surface, there's more of the iceberg than there is outside the water, like what you actually see. Yes, exactly. So yeah. on the tip of the iceberg is anger, but then below the surface is fear, overwhelm, sorrow, grief, you know what I mean? So everything that we're suppressing eventually bubbles to the surface in anger. And um, and from my experiences in the oil field, I see it all the time. There is so much alcoholism and substance abuse in those arenas. Um, and, and it really does stem to that. And there's also a big factor in there too, with, um, loneliness and isolation, because yeah. when you're suffering in silence, because you're not vulnerable to share those emotions and communicate to your loved ones, then there's this sense of loneliness and isolation. And that is a huge contributor to addictions is that is those two things. There's so many things that I could go into with what you just said mm -hmm. in terms of probably suicide rates in this mm. arena too, oil field suicide rates, prison, um, all of that, be, men being incarcerated, crimes being committed. I mean, of, of all of the, you know, violent crimes that are committed, I mean, what is half of those? I think alcohol is related. Half? Yeah. Something crazy. Yes. There's absolutely. a crazy number. Yeah. So when we... Um, talk about emotional connection, you know, with our spouse, say, or our partner, you know, being raw, being open about it. Do you really have a relationship? Like, do you really have, if you bottle all that, do you really have a real relationship? Does that person actually authentically know you? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. You're, I would say you're kind of putting on a little bit of a mask. And the thing is, there's so, there's a huge stigma out there that, you know, men shouldn't cry. 
and I'm I'm not too sure you might know this, but evolutionary <laughs> scientists, like why do people even cry in the first place? Like we're the only species, we're the only animal that actually cries. So the scientists actually believe that we cry so that anybody that's near us in our community can either visually or audibly hear us crying. And that's a cry for help to be, we need support, we need nurturing. So, and this is where I'd really like to end that stigma. You know, yeah. it takes a vulnerable and a brave man to actually admit his feelings and, and cry and be vulnerable. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't really do that until it's funny. I didn't do that until in, in back when I was screen testing for movies and being an actor, I had the hardest time even drumming up tears. But go through recovery and get in touch with who you are and you quickly find the ability to cry. Yes. Um, and, and not over everything. You know, there's tears of joy. There's tears of sorrow. There's different kinds of tears, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And if evolution designed our human bodies to cry so that we could, you know, um, ask for that help and support, then why are we doing it behind closed doors? Why are we hiding that? So we're actually intentionally putting ourselves in an area where we're not receiving the, the support, which now is backfiring. And one thing too, Matt, that I wanted to bring up, I really liked your video on the darkness. And, I, and, um, and that is such an important part of the healing is to getting into those emotions, is going into the darkness, into the psyche, into the subconscious you know, um, discovering those old wounds that we've been repressing or suppressing. And, um, and I think that a lot of men are actually afraid of the intensity that's going to come out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> that post was interesting be because, you know, I've got a very dark side, which a lot of people mm -hmm. do. And I think that as a strong male, you need it. We're built to have that dark side, to be able to do the things we need to do to survive. And that's part of our makeup. So I, I don't, I don't, I think we fight that often or, or we don't know how to control it. So give me a drink and you'll see that dark side because I can no longer control it. That's scary. That's a scary thought. And, and, and so when I, when I, when I got sober, I, I had to take a look at what that was, what was really bothering me. Right. Um, and, and, and who am I deep down? What are my darkest thoughts? My most feared, you know, emotions that I, I don't want to touch and why don't I want to touch them? What happened? And you have to go there. Like if you yes. don't go there, how are you ever going to heal? Like how are you ever going to say I can at least accept them and then know they're there if I don't acknowledge them and then I use alcohol, I'm just kind of letting them control me, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And it might sound a little bit cliche, but you'll always hear that, you know, you got to see it to feel it to heal it. And that is so true. Even though, you know, you might not want to visit those places again, you really do need to get there in order to kind of move forward from it. Because if you don't deal with those wounds of the past, then like, like we've been saying, it just bubbles up somewhere else, whether it be the anger and the conflict or the addictions. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's frightening to think, frankly, scare me. And that's okay. 
I think that's a good thing that I have those and that I know how to control them. I think it is good to be a savage, but how can you really be a savage and be successful mm. and be a man and act like a man unless you can look at yourself and see all those ugly parts of yourself and then know they're there but not act upon them unless it's absolutely necessary. But if you don't know they're there and you don't know how to access them, you're just forever an adolescent. You don't really know what you're doing. Yes, that's a good point. Did you find that when you started to access those dark parts of yourself, was there a lot of shame and guilt that you carried around? Were you afraid to tell your story? Yeah, I wasn't a great guy. There have been times that I haven't been the best person, obviously. You know, when you black out and you're drinking, you know, people tell you what you did or the fact that I had this terrible car accident that I created where I was in a total black, I was in a blackout. I don't remember what I did. And, you know, people could have been killed easily. Mm -hmm. That's monstrous in a way because I, have, I had no regard for anyone else's well-being. Very selfish until I took a look at like, why? Why would I, am I that selfish? Am I being that big of a child that I can't, handle what was happening to me. I couldn't handle it. And it was so acute that I didn't want to be uncomfortable for just a moment. Like I couldn't be uncomfortable, you know, I couldn't yes. take it. And so I had to just use something yes. to make me not feel the discomfort. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of us go through that. I mean, you probably see this all the time where a lot of people don't just want to be uncomfortable for a little bit, especially Young people, teenagers, what do you see that we're teaching them when we give them these devices and we let them sit in their room in their own world and on these, you know, Xboxes and they play games all day and they're consumers versus creating their own, you know, fun where when I was a kid, we had to create our own fun. You were gone all day. Yes. So now what do we have? What are we making with these kids? Do you see this in, in your your practice and your work. I'm actually causing trouble for them. Yes. I'm glad that you actually brought that up, Matt, because I do actually have clients as we speak that have young kids at home, adolescent teenagers, that the screen time is a big thing. It is actually disrupting the dynamics of the family unit because these kids are so addicted to these screens. Uh, I mean, it's dopamine, right? Dopamine nation. Yeah. Yeah. Constant. Like, you know, mm -hmm. I, and Instagram, some of these apps that we use, it, it's ruined relationships. I've seen it happen. It's social media has ruined relationships for me. Mm -hmm. um, it's a powerful tool. It probably is in some ways demonic. I mean, I'm sure it is, mm -hmm. but you know, how do we get a handle on that? What do we do with young people? I myself have a 19-year-old son. He's about to turn 20. I have a 17-year-old daughter. I don't let them bring their phone to the table. I find it very disrespectful. They're not allowed to do that at dinner. My wife tries to sit us down and at least have a family dinner two or three nights a week. So we still try to keep that together as much as we can, but it's hard to get them out of their rooms mm. and downstairs participating and active in anything because they're so addicted to that dopamine yes. talking about how do we what do we do what kind of tools do you mm -hmm. use how do you work with people to get them to help their young people not be on those devices because you know there's a lot of 
there's a lot of anger, a lot of kickback when you try to tell them, get off that. There's, there can be a big fight. Yes. And you just said it. There is a lot of kickback. And that's the thing is like as parents, as hard as it may be, we really do have to set those boundaries. Since when is it the kids are ruling the roost? And that's what I'm witnessing is that the kids are ruling the roost. They make the decisions. And so as a parent, I feel like you have to get over those really hard parts of the discipline where there is going to be a complete meltdown, but it needs to happen, you know, and the parents would have to regulate the nervous systems and go into it and just keep doing it until they can kind of get the results. But, um, but I mean, we do also have to kind of realize that this is the generation too. We didn't grow up like that. So there is a little bit of a difference in generation there. So we do have to be acceptant of it to a certain degree, but not to the point where now it's disrupting sleep or family time, like no TV at the dinner table is what I always said. So yeah. having those activities where their phones are not allowed. You know, when I yeah. was growing up, it was no TV, you know, but now it's the phones, but same thing. Yeah, me too. No, no TV during, during dinner. We yeah. didn't have a TV in the kitchen. Yeah. Couldn't have a TV in the dining room. That didn't happen. Yeah. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've I've recently heard that the the brain of a, a young person doesn't totally form until they're like 27 or 28 years old. Yeah. Is well, that... they're yeah they're considered an adolescent until they're about 25 years old. So yeah, you're bang on, and the brain is still developing. So when we're talking about like neural pathways, you know, this is where it's really important to set these habits where there is no screen time and they are engaged in activities, I always encourage my clients to um, play games, you know, uh, create vision boards, journal, do all kinds of things within the family dynamic. And I actually do have a client that is doing that right now and she is getting results. So it does work. Oh. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of, I'm I'm picking your brain here almost as like a, a client. Sorry. I, I just, <laughs> this okay. is kind of <laughs> what I think is most beneficial for people. I'm thinking of people out there that have, you know, young teens or, you know, kids that are, you know, nine, 10 years old, they're giving them the devices now at five years old. And in and, and these, this dopamine hit, these neural pathways that are being formed are probably very similar to the ones that we shape over time in addiction. So there's also probably behaviors that happen before the use of the device mm -hmm. and then behaviors that happen after the use of the device that are all formed in our neural pathways. And so it takes time to break that up. I would assume, like you were saying, there's got to be some issues that go back and forth like, Hey, I don't want to play a board game tonight, you know, and, and, then they're dragging their feet coming down to play the board game. Hey, I don't want to play a board game tonight, you know, and, and then they're dragging their feet coming down to play the board game. And then the third week in a row, and then they're starting to just come down knowing they come down to do it. You have to kind of break through that. Is that you kind do. of how it works? Yes, you do. You know, and one thing too, that I observe, um, even if it's out, like say shopping at the grocery store and stuff like that, I just feel like parents nowadays their nervous systems are so flooded they're so overwhelmed with just everyday life that all it takes is a child to like disrupt or erupt i should say to erupt and the parents are so um flooded already that they'll do anything just to soothe that child 
because they're so overwhelmed already. So, and I see it all the time, all the time, just in my personal life, just being out grocery shopping, you know, kids will have a meltdown and it's like, here, do this. I'll do anything. Just be quiet. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you there. And, and I see it all the time too. And mm-hmm. I'm probably guilty of that when the kids were young, you know, giving them a phone at a restaurant in between the order and the food being delivered. Here's a phone. Just leave me alone. You know, I don't want to deal with it. And mm-hmm. that's sad. You know, looking back, I wasn't always that way. I was a, I was a decent dad. I, I did the waking up in the middle of the night and feeding them and all that stuff. But, um, you know, I was guilty of wanting to just go and do my own thing or not have to deal with soothing them or taking care of them. So now this also creates an emotional distance, I would assume. Yes. Absolutely. So I think as parents, you know, learning the the skills and the knowledge on how to regulate, you know, I, I've seen parents that actually practice meditation and breath work with their children, you mm-hmm. know, and it, it actually does work because it, you know, it's not woo woo. This is like physiological changes in the body that if we can start doing these practices that everybody will benefit everybody, including the children. Yep. No, that makes a lot of sense, and I think that old you know people that are in any age would benefit from that. I don't think there's even an age limit on that, but if you can start it young, I guess the neural pathways wouldn't be as hard to um, reshape. It seems that the, the further along we get, you know, the old saying "you can't teach an old dog new tricks" becomes kind of applied to this, and it gets a little bit harder, but it's still doable. Oh, it's very doable. So that's why I always encourage clients to, you know, be active in your kids' development, you know, whether it be like arts and crafts, you know, or learning games, you know, cards, whatever it is, like painting, drawing, there's so many things that we can do with our children and even adults. Like I encourage my adult clients to do things like this as well. That's why there's such a thing as like art therapy. You know, ecotherapy is another one. Getting out into nature, making kids curious again about what it's like to be just human and, you know, poke at dead things with sticks. I don't know. Like <laughs> <laughs> I did I did that when I when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And I still do it. I I, I paint, you know, I will mm-hmm. um I will just throw art, like not throw art, but I will throw acrylic paint on mm-hmm. canvas anytime I get the chance, like I'm Jackson Pollock or something, but it does some it stimulates a part of the brain that causes a release, not unlike exercise, where I can start to detach from the world that okay. causes so many issues for me in terms of overstimulation, and it releases it. So that, that's kind of what I did when I got sober: is I went for exercise, you mm-hmm. know, training, mm-hmm. bodybuilding, fitness. It. I, it just caused that, you know, dopamine. And it was, it was definitely, I was definitely reshaping those neural pathways to into a different drug. I mean, it was a little bit of an addiction, but it was definitely a lot more positive than what was happening when I was using alcohol. Yes. Yeah. My go-to was the gym as well. Um, but mostly nature too. I was outside a lot. I went hiking all the time, you know, and then with the fresh air and, you know, with the breathing, and physical activity, it's just, it really does help, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. I always recommend that to all my clients. Ecotherapy is great. I mean, it can be just as something mm-hmm. as simple as picking up an object in the forest and just studying it, 
you know, having a look at it, looking at its, you know, the, the qualities of it, the way it's shaped, the texture, you know, and even though it doesn't sound like much, it actually makes a lot of improvement in someone. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I read an article once, but it was about filmmaking. And when you change your lens, mm -hmm. it totally changes your perspective. Even if you're focused on the same object, it can be a rock from a wide angle and it has certain characteristics. And then at a medium lens, you start to see different colors in the rock because you're closer to it. And then when you go into a macro, really tight close-up you know, view of, of the rock, it, it can look like the surface of another planet for that matter. So it's, it's interesting the way what you're talking about is, is just looking at life from different perspectives and going, getting more granular with it, which is really kind of a cool way to look at life, you know, and, and creativity. I think creativity plays a big role in a lot of, you know, the addicts that I see out there, uh, lives. They're often very creative people. Yes. Um, creativity is such a huge part in, in recovery, in, in my opinion, um, just going back to the basics. And I think that that's part of the problem nowadays is that we have way too many choices, way too many choices. And, um, do you, do you watch Andrew Huberman at all? The Huberman lab? Yeah. I've seen a lot of stuff. Yeah. He's mm -hmm. great. Like when he mm -hmm. talks about like yeah. that baseline, uh, we have a baseline dopamine, so let's just say, for instance, you're scrolling through social media, the first page you look at, you know, you get a dopamine hit, you enjoy it, you like it, you comment, you know, and then the second one, you might just like it. So like the, by the third, um, third post that you're going to look at, the dopamine is already diminished. So that third post, you might not actually really like it. It might not be that exciting to you anymore because you're already kind of depleted the dopamine. But then he explains that if that third post, the next day would be the first post that you would see, then all of a sudden now you're liking, commenting and sharing because it is actually exciting to you. And then the first one from the day before is now the third one is not so exciting. So it really is about the dopamine. So we really mm -hmm. do have to be aware of that when we start to feel kind of blah maybe a little bit depressed, you know, are you depressed or is your dopamine depleted? That is a really interesting point. Do we sleep enough? Do we get enough rest? Do we get enough time off of this device? Uh, are we taking the time for ourselves to decompress and pull away from the work? Yes. And how effective are we? Like, Mm -hmm. You know, I know 90 minutes is the key. I've listened to him talk about 90 minutes. You can get about 90 minutes of, you know, pure straight work before it, it starts to fade. And that's probably dopamine too. You start out, I'm going to do this yeah. project. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to write the best article ever. But then after 90 minutes, you're, you're done writing that best article ever. You need to yes. take a breather and relax. Yes. And they say like the average TikTok um, will give us about 10,000 different images in a 30 minute span. And our brains are not designed really to hold that much information. So we're actually becoming quite overwhelmed with all of these, you know, all of these images and all of these decisions that we're making. Because you think about back way back, way, way back, you know, we went from the house to the yard, you know, to the field to the forest, to the mountains. That was it. That's what we had. 
But now we can research anything and everything. And it is just really a lot of information overload. So if we're not getting the proper REM sleep, our brain doesn't have a chance to actually clean out the toxins. REM sleep. So the difference, let's, let's say you don't get REM sleep. And I know in a lot of addiction, uh, you know, in, in the alcohol realm and when you're drinking, you're not getting the sleep that you need. And it's a huge factor, right? In addiction, uh, the not getting the REM sleep, you can't ever heal. And how does that work? And, and what do you suggest for clients to make sure that they get the right amount of sleep? And how do they, how do you, how do you position that? Um, usually I always recommend setting up like a bedtime routine. It's just like children, right? But if we have these little routines that, um, like say for instance, for instance, if you go brush your teeth, have a shower, you know, get on your pajamas, read a bit of a book, but you stick to the same thing and you set up this little routine, eventually your mind knows that, oh, this is time to go to bed because I'm doing X, Y, Z. So it just kind of creates this pattern. And I mean, you can do whatever you like in that, in that routine, except for the screen time. Um, and I definitely recommend at least an hour before bed, be, you know, no screen times, because the blue light spectrum and I'll just say this because maybe some of the viewers aren't aware of this, but when your body is exposed to that blue light spectrum, which is in the, you know, the tablets and the screens and whatnot, your body actually stops producing melatonin because in nature, you know, it's that blue light spectrum that basically tells everything to wake up. It's time to get up. It's daytime. And then as the sun is setting, it's a different color on the spectrum. It's more of an orange tone on the spectrum. And that's why on some smartphones, well, probably most of them now, they have an, uh, an option where you can click the side buttons and change the screen to a red screen. Mm -hmm. And I do recommend yeah. that, especially if you're waking up in the middle of the night and looking at your phone, right? Because yeah. that flash of that blue light spectrum is telling your body that it's time to get up. And that's why it's probably really difficult to go back to sleep. So there is that yeah. too. There is chemicals being released in the brain. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. um, there is like, there's like a night mode that yes. you can put on the phone. Yeah. You can transfer it over and it turn, you're right. It does turn a little bit red and it is easier to look at. Uh, my wife next to me when I've got my computer in bed, which I don't usually do, mm -hmm. but you know, so I, she's like, I can't sleep with that on. But the TV on, it's even easier for her to sleep. Why? I don't know, but probably mm -hmm. because the computer's emitting something different and the phone as well. It's, mm -hmm. it's intense. So what is, that's scary to think about what that's probably doing to our, our, our skin and our eyes and everything else, you know, I'm like, mm -hmm. and I, I know, I wonder if this actually causes like sunspots. I mean, is it, is it damaging our, our actual skin? Mm, that's a good question. I, I'm not really sure about that, but it's got to have some effects, right? Because it is like a UV lighting and and whatnot. And I actually did um, watch a documentary long time ago about REM sleep. And they said that even like the tiny little lights that are just the power on indicators on TVs, and maybe even on charge cords, you know, like just that tiny little light that just says that there's power to something is enough to keep us from going into a REM sleep, because our eyelids are so thin, that the light actually goes through that. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, that that that's crazy. And so so you're not wrong. Like this is really an issue. Like you've got like mobile phones. They do. I'm looking it up here. Mm-hmm. They actually it's exposure to radiation and blue light mm-hmm. can lead to hyperpigmentation and dark patches Ooh. and spots on the skin. Oh, I'm glad you looked that up. Yes. I would I would have, have assumed so, but I'm definitely not an expert on that. I wouldn't have been able to. So I'm glad you looked that up because yes. Wow. So beyond just the emotional, mm-hmm. psychological, uh, sleep issues, it's mm-hmm. also physically harming us. And I read something recently that said kids that are gamers, I don't know if you've seen any of this, but some of them that are gamers, they now have like indentations in their heads from wearing the headphones and gaming for so long. And some kids now are developing like a slouched look where they're, they're, they're like they can't sit up straight because they've been so long looking at their phones that they're saying that you know people 50 years from now are going to actually have a different posture just because of these devices. But I digress. Sorry, I went into a totally different thing. No, that's fine. Say somebody comes to you and they're really like – they're in it, they're using every day, they drink, say, every day, and they want to get sober. You know, what do you tell them first when they come to you? What do you say to them when they first come to you and they're like, I need help, I can't quit drinking, How, what do I do? What should I do? Well, the first thing that I'm going to do is obviously um, share, like, knowledge and resources, right? Look at different programs, support groups, communities, like AANA and stuff like that. But I think the biggest thing, <clears throat> excuse me, is their environment. Their environment is huge. Like, where are these patterns coming from? You know, you can't get healthy in the environment that made you sick, right? So is it a work environment that's really toxic? Is it the family that's toxic? The friends? I mean, it is really, really scary for some people you know, when they think about what kind of changes actually have to be made, because it could even be like the demographics, like where they live, their communities, like it's a big thing. And that's part of the reason too, like even in the oil field, you know, it's, um, it's an industry that let's just put it this way. If the consequences aren't celebrated, they're tolerated. So it's a really hard environment. So the old saying in AA is, you know, people, places, and things. Mm-hmm. How do we effectively help these people that come to us? Because I have people that come to me too on a daily basis and say, I want to get sober. I can't quit drinking. I had a person recently come to me and say, I'm broken. My mother died a year ago. I haven't been able to get over it. Uh, it's crushed my soul. Mm-hmm they still do all the same activities that they've always done. And I think the the biggest thing, the biggest factor in that conversation of actually helping that person was I'm not a professional right now. I'm not trying to tell you, give you total professional advice, but I can say that you're not really honoring your mother in, you know, wallowing in sorrow and drinking. Yes. Right it's just that's not that's not what i'm sure your mother would want it sounds like you had a close relationship um mm-hmm. how do we so when we have these people places and things what do we tell people you know to get them to stop doing the same things over and over again how do I, that's the thing how do we get through to them i know aa is great and that works but 
is there anything we can say to these people that makes them start thinking nothing nothing's going to change if i don't start making changes how do we get them to activate that that seems to be the hard thing because it's so easy to run back to the chemical is there any kind of tricks that we can like mm. what can we pull can we pull a rabbit out of a hat here i mean how do we do this yeah it's it's a tough one you know what i mean because we have like what we call the six stages of change so for instance there's a pre-contemplation which now that's a person who doesn't see that they need a change. Those are people that are usually mandated through the courts, given ultimatums by their family. Maybe it was their boss that, um, you know, said that you have to quit drinking or you'll lose your employment. Um, but then there's the contemplation. And that's kind of what you're describing right now is that the client comes in, they know that they need to change, but they just don't know how. Um, so that's kind of when you're going to start brainstorming, you know, giving them the tools. Okay, like what fits for them? Can they get to these support groups? Can they afford to sign up for therapy? There's a lot of free resources out there as well, right? So I would always say start working with either a coach, you know, and that could even be a personal trainer just to learn about you know, how, what health and nutrition, you know, um, just little gradual changes in any direction can help, you know, because sometimes people have just been doing the same thing for so long that they don't see anything outside of that. So it's just basically, you know, staying curious and working with people that can help you, um, you know, start making those changes. And like I said, even a personal trainer, that's where I started. Yeah. yeah. When I came out of recovery, I, similar to that, I, I actually started training people. So I got certified, became a trainer because I was so into weightlifting. And I ended up training people, but I would find that I wasn't, it wasn't about the physical. It wasn't, a, none of that was the main focus of what they were looking for from me. Mm -hmm. They were looking for the motivation. They were looking for the guidance to change their life. Yes and do the right things for themselves mm -hmm. and they didn't have a lot of self-confidence mm, that's a good one in themselves yeah, yeah. so it was self-confidence was lacking so i became this person to help them build up their self-confidence mm -hmm. you know through external going internal but really i was working on the inside and, and when i worked on the inside you know the outside just came along nicely it was a lot easier especially when it comes to weight loss yeah I had clients lose a hundred pounds when they were working out with mm. me in just you know three or four months. Yes. So that was a great, that was a really fun thing. So personal trainer is a great one. And a lot of times the people are not coming to me, you know, because of court mandated, you know, issues or things like that. They're already contemplating. That's why they're online. They're looking at a post that I made and they're saying, yeah. Hey, you know, yes. can you give me some advice? And I did do what you said. I did give them advice about you should try AA. They hate AA. They don't want to do it. It doesn't work for them. You know, you, you get that kind of thing. And then, you know, and then you say, well, can you talk to a therapist? Can you talk to somebody? And, and you go that route. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So tough one, isn't it? To try to get people to engage in this, these life-changing behaviors and change their people, places, and things. Yes. Yes. And another tool that I really like to use too is um, transferable skills. And this is usually something that we use when people are looking for a career change. However, this works for everybody that's just looking for a life change. And basically, we just go and take an inventory 
of their values, their beliefs, you know, and taking an inventory of all the skills that they have, things that they're interested in. And then we kind of put those all together. And then we start looking at things that they might be actually interested in that they haven't even thought about, you know, like, and, and that could go in so many different directions. Wow. Yeah. We limit ourselves. Yes. Yeah, we really do. We keep ourselves in a box. So when we take a visual inventory of those things, um, then there's like these uh, resources that we can use that have like uh, multiple, multiple, almost infinite um, categories of things that you would have never have normally thought about until you start putting them into categories. And then you'd be like, oh my God, I actually have a real keen interest in this. So then you start directing them into the areas where they can exercise that. Could be the arts, it could be drama classes, it could be music, it could be, I mean, like I said, it's endless. Wow. <laughs> that that goes that goes deep, doesn't it? Because that mm. goes back into a person's past. How were they programmed? Who told them what they should be and yes. who were they listening to? And was the person telling them what they should be? Were they telling them that, them that because it was best for them or for themselves? Oh. You never know the advice you're getting out there as you go along this life. Was it good? Mm-hmm. And so that makes a lot of sense because a lot of us don't get good advice from no, the time we're no. young and not in school either. I mean, I don't, I never found, you know, my schooling from the time I was in elementary school mm-hmm. through the time that I had gone to college really super beneficial for what I was trying to do as an entrepreneur. Yes, exactly. You know, and that's exactly it. I mean, our core beliefs, I mean, what is a belief? It's something that we've been told over and over and over and over again until it becomes a belief. And a lot of those beliefs will come from our earliest caregivers, our teachers, our coaches, our peers, and they might not necessarily be our own beliefs. So when a client comes to me and they're just not really sure on where to go, that's the first thing that I get into is like, well, what's your values? You know, and then I'll ask the questions. Well, where did that come from? Is that your values? You know, and then all of a sudden you're, you're going to see the light go on the aha light. Who am I? What? Yeah, who am I? <laughs> they start, yeah. They start to wonder about themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, whoa, uh, what? I don't even know who I am. And I think that's where I was when I went into recovery when I went eight years ago when I got sober. I think I tried to get sober before that, 13 years before that. I was sober. I didn't drink for 13 years. Mm. And, you know, just one night, eight years ago, I was filming a movie in a bar and they were walking by with tequila shots and I just grabbed one and shot it. I didn't even think. Mm. It wasn't even a thought. It was just like, no problem. And so, you know, I had fallen back into the idea that it was okay, I think, long before I actually took the drink. Mm -hmm. And I had started, you know, living, I lived in an area where there was a lot of bars, and I'd never lived in an area where there was a lot of bars. I was one block off the the boulevard. I could smell the stale beer in the morning. And it was, again, we were talking about social cues, you know, these, Mm -hmm. these, uh, people, places, and things, changing your environment. Well, my environment was a poor choice at that point. And, you know, I wouldn't take it back now, but you're right. There's, this has, all of this plays in, you know, Mm -hmm. and knowing yourself sounds like 
is the most important thing yes. and the most the key factor in all of this. Absolutely. And I really like that you brought that up about your environment because our whole identity is people, places, and things. We create this narrative, this story about who we are due to all of those experiences. So now when you're trying to get sober and you are in recovery, it's a really scary place to be because all of those people, places, and things generally have to go because that's where you got sick is in those environments. So now people come out of that and go, holy, like, who am I? Because again, it's, you have to reauthor the story. And that's why it's really a helpful tool to start doing the values and the core beliefs exercise, you know, and then those transferable skills to show them that they are somebody outside of all those people, places and things. And that's where that identity mm -hmm. comes in again. Like you probably had that Hollywood identity, right? The go-to guy, the fun guy, the party guy. Yeah. I mean, I had a really interesting background where, you know, I had the opportunities that were handed to me at certain times to be super famous, biggest agents in Hollywood. Uh, and and I, I turned down a few things here and there because of, um, I think my moral upbringing a little bit stopped me from moving forward with some of those things, but I beat myself up about it. I just was so upset with myself that I wasn't able to sort of lose the moral compass to do a few of these things to accelerate my career. And looking back, it was a good thing. I wouldn't be alive today had I done it because this were these were not were you know, worldwide recognition. Um, and I think it would have been a really hard thing for me to manage my sobriety. In fact, the guy that did sort of end up where I was uh, the same trajectory and, and same roles and things is he's dead. You know, he died. And so, and huge, you would, you know, huge actor. And so I think the people, places, and things are, really critical and how you identify yourself. And then how do we, for me, it was hard because like you said, you feel lonely. Like you, there's this isolation, you know, when you stop all of this, cause then the friends go away. When you're the guy at the, when you're the guy that goes to the bar and you buy everybody drinks and you've got the house you own up in the Hills and this is your identity. And then you stop drinking. They don't really want to hang out with you anymore. They don't want to come over to your house just to sit down and have a nice conversation over tea. They're there to party. They're there for the women. They're there for the cocaine. Mm -hmm. They're there for those things. They're not there to really be with you. They don't want to be your friend. Yes. They want all the things that come along with identifying as your friend. Yes, exactly. I tried to explain that to my ex when he was still very much in it. I said, you take the money and the drugs away and these people, they're going to disappear. And he argued with me. He's like, no way, Rhonda. These are my friends. These are my bros. And I think it was about eight years later, like we had broken up. I moved on. And about eight years later, he called me and he said, Rhonda, you were right. Because when he hit rock bottom, nobody was there beside him. Nobody. And he had felt the lonely, loneliest of all of his life was during that time. So it was, it was sad for him. but. I'm glad that he finally, finally got it eventually, but it was just a little bit too late. Yeah, it, it's crazy the way that works mm -hmm. and how quickly you can fill that void with cross addiction. So you can easily just jump from that alcohol addiction I had to a relationship, which 
kind of soothed me, but I wasn't really in love. I wasn't even really into it. I just did it because it, it was there and it was easy and it made me feel better. And it was a constant companion, but it wasn't really a deep loving relationship. Yeah. And I think we can jump into that. You know, it was just sex and, you know, um, hanging out, no drinking, but just like my, it was like almost like a friendship. And I think that happens to a lot of people. They jump into a different addiction, you know, whether that be work or a sport or um, spending money, shopping. There's all these different cross addictions. So when we change our people, our places and our things, how do we, I guess, how do we manage that? You know, how do we, how do we develop these positive activities? You know, what do we do? Do we, any advice on how we develop these positive activities once we change those people, places and things so we don't have that loneliness and that impending mm-hmm. doom that we, we end up feeling? Yeah, that's a really good question, Matt. And I really like that you brought up cross addictions because in, in therapy, that is something that is actually quite relevant is a lot of people go into uh, food addictions, uh, retail therapy, as we call it, you know, spending way above their means because now the shopping um, you know, gambling, pornography, there's so many things, um, you know, and unfortunately it is a lonely road, but anything anybody's ever told me, like my mentors is patience, just be patient. Yes, it's a lonely road, but eventually you will attract your peeps and you will start building community and your support team. And, um, and then the people that are there actually want to be there because you're, your true authentic self. Um, but it does take time. It really does. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's okay to be a lone wolf. I, I was a lone wolf. I always have been. I never really had a lot of friends. I honestly, even in high school, you know, I was always sort of that guy where they wanted me around. I was around, you know, I could, okay, go to the bar with us. You know what I mean? gonna be a bunch of chicks there go to the bar with us you're gonna help us pick up chicks i mean that would happen to me um and then but friendship deep meaningful friendship with these guys now there was always too much competition there was always too much of an issue yes you know it never it never went away and so i started to distance myself from these guys and say fuck you i don't want to deal with you yeah and I'm done. And I started to go on my own path. And that's when I started to really flourish and started doing acting and those things. I moved to LA and did all this stuff. And it was great. By the way, I loved the sunshine too. And we haven't touched on that, but weather and how that affects behavior is crazy. LA was great for me in that way. But again, you know, it's so easy to fall back into. And I did after a certain period of time, fall back in with a couple of people who pretended to be my friends. And I ended up drunk all day long and they would just drive me around and do whatever I I wanted to do. I had money. I was on a TV show. And it's it's crazy the way who you choose to be in your life has the biggest impact on on what your life is. Yes. Yes. And um your enemies come smiling. When you're in those types of uh group dynamics, like what you were explaining, your your friend your enemies come smiling. Like those people are not there to you know, for your best interest at all. And like, and that's what I said earlier about, you know, you take away the money, you take away the drugs, you take away that fun guy now who wants to be sober and stay home on a Friday night, on Friday night, then yeah, you don't fit in anymore. And that's okay, though, people need to understand that that's okay. And it is okay to be alone. 
It's like you will get to know yourself at the deepest level when you are alone. You know, devote your life to some reading and research. Um, I have lots of people in my circle now that are like me, right? That have gone through these challenges that support me, that are authentic, but it took like two or three years. Yeah. It takes a long time. I've been exactly there where you were. I was alone. I was in an apartment in Seal Beach. It was nice. I was on Ocean Avenue in Orange County, California. Uh, tiny little place. I'd never lived in something like that before, but I was happy. I was okay with that. I was actually okay in rehab, believe it or not, with a mattress on the floor, you know, next to a mirrored closet with a guy snoring, you know, five <laughs> feet away from me. And I, yeah. I was all right. I was like, this is okay. I actually felt protected mm. because I knew my ex couldn't get to me. Mm -hmm. I, I, I was, I, people were there to support me. I felt like I belonged. And so it felt very good to be there. I would be happy to come back to that little twin mattress. I did not go to a rehab that was fluffy. It wasn't Promises Malibu. I wasn't, you know, doing equine therapy. Mm -hmm. I was in a place where they were telling you, you are not special. You are not unique. In fact, you're probably a really selfish individual. And I, I was told this over and over again, and they weren't wrong. I had no humility. Mm -hmm. And once I think I started to learn that humility, that's when things started to really change for me. Like, how can I help other people versus just like helping myself all the time? Mm. And that was probably the most profound thing that happened to me in recovery and not trying to look like I'm cool or that I don't have to have like, I don't have to be super famous. I don't have to be super powerful. I don't have to have all the right cars or the right house or the right clothes or the right drugs or whatever it is to make people happy. I just need to be happy with who I am without all those things. Yeah. And that came through, I guess, having humility. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. And I really liked what you said about how you felt, um, you felt safe there. You felt accepted because there's a huge difference between fitting in and being accepted. So in that, in that space, in rehab, like you said, the, you know, the guy next to you that's snoring and everything and that you felt protected there is because you were accepted there. People were looking at you for who you really were and they had your best interest. So, and that's a big thing about addictions is the denial part, uh, the diffusion of responsibility, which is like, oh, well, everyone else is doing it. So I'm doing it. And what, where does that come from? Well, because we want to fit in. But to fit in and acceptance, two totally different things. Yeah, I, I definitely fit in, in like Hollywood with the look and the abilities and the, you know, all of that, but accepted, there was no real acceptance in that world. That was a very soulless place. But once you got to recovery and I was there, accepted told that I was doing things improperly in my life, mm -hmm. but that was a part of the acceptance because they cared enough to tell me that. Yeah. Yeah. They were forthright with, you know, helping me realize that I don't even know who I am. Yes. Whatever I like identity that. I had was, you know, a false identity. So I had a mask or whatever that I was wearing and the mask was gone. Like when I had that car accident, I broke my neck. Mm. You know, I, um, <laughs> I was just a mess. I mean, I, I left, I got bailed out when I was in the hospital. I didn't have to go to jail. 
but I had a broken neck, uh, wingtip vertebrae. Couldn't even hold my head up. Mm. So I'm like, like this. I right? saw and the I, pictures. I, yeah. Yeah. And scary. it's crazy what I did. Mm. I told the nurses, get me the, out of here. Mm-hmm. Give me the papers. I'm signing myself out. Mm-hmm. They're like, you should not leave. You will probably die. Mm. I said, no, give me the papers. So I signed the papers. I leave. I'm, I'm in a hospital gown holding my neck in a yellow cab in Orange County, California, on my way back to a residence inn. Wow. And what do you think I do? The first thing I do is I go around the corner in that hospital gown. I buy a bottle of booze, go back to the room and drink it until I pass out. Mm. And it, I should have been dead. But you know, the power of addiction is incredible you know, when you're in it. And I really needed to hit a bottom and it's interesting to try to urge people not to hit that bottom. Like, how do you, you know, you want so badly, don't you? So many times to, to try, try to reach people before they get to that place like I was in, mm-hmm. uh, where they no longer have freedom. They lose their freedom yes. or they lose their ability to walk or they, you know, they just do these things that are unimaginable that they would never do had they not used yeah. alcohol. Absolutely. And I think about the core wounds you know, the intensity of getting into those wounds to heal those wounds, you would rather be completely blacked out drunk. You know what I mean? And and again, it's just that coping mechanism again, to stay away from all of that, that wounding. But uh, like the moral compass, though, I'd really like to kind of dig into that a little bit. Like, did you kind of get spit out of that industry deeply morally wounded? Or were you able to kind of keep that in, intact? No, I kept it. Mm-hmm. There were times where I would be up for a, a big role in something, you know, it would be me and Colin Farrell and, mm-hmm. you know, it would be, Hey, you're the best actor for this job, but it's, t- it's come down to the two of you and the director, Joel Schumacher really wants to hang out with you. Mm, like hang out, hang out. Right. And so I would say, you know, I just, I'm, ugh, you know, no, I can't, I can't do that. Or mm-hmm. I would go and I would make, I made a great, I made a, a movie that was a big deal at the Tribeca Film Festival. It did really well. The first year Tribeca was around, directed that. And then after that, I got picked up by a really big agent. Mm-hmm. And they were going to show me the power of this agency. And so they had essentially set me up with, I would, I would assume this would have been the most popular actress of, 2005, 2006, top of the game. There's nobody bigger. Chateau Marmont got set up, you know, and, and it, it was, it would have been mutually beneficial. I mean, she was very attractive. It wouldn't have been a difficult thing for me to step into to dating this person. And what they were hoping for is immediately you're on the tabloids, you're in People magazine. And then that actually pushes your career further than you, you know, honestly earning that yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know how Hollywood works. And so they were helping me there. And I, I turned that down because I had a son on the way and I had a, a girlfriend who was pregnant at home. And that was so weird and so surreal working five years, going to like 2000 different auditions, driving all over Los Angeles, knowing that this is the defining moment. This is it. This is, I mean, you worked to get to this point. This is really what Hollywood is. It's a giant high school. You're going to need to date this woman, mm-hmm. leave the kid and the girlfriend yeah. and go do this. And I didn't. And from there on, from that point forward, 
you know, you're not going to rise any higher to a different agent. Nobody's going to pick you up. You know, there was other circumstances where there was a role that I got in Hollywood with that agent. um, And it was a role that I really wanted. The director wanted me to do the job. The producer hired me. We were in my agent's office, did a big talk about it. I was ready to do it. I left the office. Producer director stayed. Director calls me the next day and says, hey, man, you need to talk to your agent because the second you left, he said, I can get you Jared Leto. So what happens is, is they smile, you know, and then they just give you a shiv down your spine. And that is that industry. That's the way that industry works. So you have to develop this kind of tough exterior and you have to have a very small moral compass. And Mm -hmm. it just didn't work for me that way. Yeah. I, but what I'm kind of picking up from this though, the moral wounding would be to know that that shit's actually happening. And there had to have been some resentment and bitterness towards that, the malevolence of what people are capable of in order to dangle that oh, I'll make you successful, but you need to do this. Like, wow, I would have been so angry. I was pissed and it it made me angry because I earned the role. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know who did chapter 27? Jared Leto. You know, he's he's in the role. And I worked hard for that. I I earned that role. I like that was my thing. And, And there were other ones that I had earned as well. I worked very hard to get those. And it's not how it works. Oh, it works man. on a different system. It's such a weird industry. Yeah. And I ended up not really vibing with it. So I started making my own movies, which I really enjoyed. I like that. But again, how fruitful can you be with that? And is it a good industry mm-hmm. for people to be in who want to be sober? Mm. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's what they sort of discovered in recovery. They were like, are you sure that this is the industry that you want to stay in? Because I just, they just didn't see it working for me. Yeah, that's interesting. And the mm-hmm. only thing that keeps popping into my mind right now is God's rejection is God's protection. Um, and sometimes we <laughs> do, we have to believe in that. We have to believe in a greater purpose, you know? God played a role in everything that I did. Mm-hmm. Um, once I got to Hollywood, every, there's so much evil. I was able to slide under the radar there. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like I was able to not get in trouble because they're out fighting so many other things that you can yeah. be pretty hammered and drive home and really you're not going to get picked up. Yeah. Yeah. Very I, rarely. I, mean, I agree. Too. Yeah. And then when you look yeah. at, look at people in Hollywood too, I, that's a question now that I would ask myself is, is there deep moral wounding there? Because why are they trying to, you know, kill themselves with drugs and alcohol? continuously you hear it in the headlines all the time there's somebody else's od'd or this or that or whatever and it's like wow what happened what's going on here and that actually happened to a really good friend of mine too he was a model and the agency that he was with sent him to milan to do a big shoot and the photographer same thing was like okay you're staying behind you you and you you're staying behind everybody dropped their clothes And he's like, no, I'm not doing this. And the photographer basically said, pack your shit and get out of here. And the agency, the agency left him in Milan to fend for himself because obviously it was a paid trip, but they didn't pay his way back. They just wiped their hands of it. And, and he was deeply wounded from that because he had such a, a big opportunity there. 
and it was gone in an instant. It's not what you think it is. It really isn't. Um, That's sad. That happens. Those magazines that you see all of the women in, Mm -hmm. like Glamour and Esquire, whatever it was uh, back in the day, I did not know this, but those were all advertisements for wealthy men in other countries to go ahead and pick them up and date them or have them as escorts for whatever time period they wanted. I think that happened on Celebrity Rehab. There was a a model on there, and I forget her name, but she exposed that many years ago. So this is the industry, and it really is about sexual exploitation and dark desires and fulfilling fantasies of sycophant, crazy people who are power-hungry without any moral compass or any soul and are totally godless. And that is very true of Hollywood. It looks beautiful. Like you said, your friends are going to, the enemies are going to look gorgeous. Yes. Yes. Well, they sure do. Yeah. And I, I saw that firsthand myself, even though I was not in Hollywood. However, I did see some of those multi-millionaire, multi-billionaire clients that were flying in with their private Learjets that were renting condos for the weekend that, you know, it was just a drug infused weekend and, and the escorts and the strippers and, and then meanwhile, this, this guy goes back to his, you know, back to his family where he has a wife and kids. And, um, but this was like a so-called business trip. Right. And I saw that more than I can shake a stick at. It's kind of where I was morally wounded because when, once mm-hmm. I got to see that, I didn't trust anybody ever again. I just thought that everybody had a double life. It was hard. Yeah, I I felt that way too when I saw that. Like I said, my family's from Kansas. My dad is not that way. Mm -hmm. He's just not. My grandfather wasn't. Neither grandfather was that way. It was just, I saw men around me that weren't that way. They didn't go get prostitutes. They weren't gone all the time. And so I grew up differently. But I will say, like, even my dad worked for Bill Gates, and he can tell you that the president of, you know, the, I think, business operations at the time for all of Microsoft, one of his main jobs was to procure prostitutes for Bill Gates when they went out of the country. Does not surprise me. That was his job. Like, that, like that's kind of what he did. And I was like, what? Are you serious? Yeah. He's like, yeah, that's what, that's what it was. And so when you see these powerful guys, I... I think that when we talk about Hollywood and we talk about sin and power and fame and money, when we talk about the money part, wouldn't you say that that is really like the people that have a lot of money, it seems to be a theme? Yes, it is actually. I'm glad that you brought that up Um, because what I found with people like that, that have multi-million, multi-billion dollars, there's nothing in their life that they have not done. There's nobody in their circles that will ever say no to them. So they're surrounded in this like surreal life where they're falling out of alignment to be what it is to be a human. And there's heavy consequences to that. Like they might look successful on the outside, but there's a lot of shit going on up here, right? And eventually it it does surface. We might not hear about all of it, but it's happening. And then where does that leave you? Like, Yeah, it's just like off to one big adventure to the next. There's really no gratification Mm -hmm. from that. It's like instant gratification. 
Mm-mm. High level of addiction, high level yeah. of so high that even the spending money, even the relationships are an addiction. Yeah. Yeah. Just to get more power, more fame, more money. Yeah. Different roles, more publicity. It's mm-hmm. it's all about that. And I found that to be really kind of a sickening part of it too. But the money part really was one of those things where I really feel like we touched on something there where a lot of people that have a lot of money just God is no longer a part of the equation. Mm-hmm. I believe in God and I believe in, you know, doing the right thing. I believe in, I go to church with my wife and we're very into mm-hmm. it. And I wasn't this way. I was not this way yeah. prior to yeah. all of this. Like I never would have even thought of this. Now, when I started personal training, when I got out of recovery, that's when I met my wife. And like you said, when you start going to do your own thing, and you're on your own path, and you're really working on you, Some something like the love of your life just comes along. It happens when you're least expecting yes. it. Yeah. But when you're out there seeking it, that's it just doesn't work that way, does it? No. There's lots of pleasures to pick from, too. You know, and that instant gratification, it's, it is addictive in itself. And that's kind of where I made a big turn too, is like, I found God as well and something bigger than myself, greater than, you know, something for me to believe in, you know, and, and that's what kind of started to pave the road into recovery is realizing mm-hmm. that there is something way bigger than us. Yeah. And it's nice to be able to turn it over to that and mm-hmm. say, look, I know I'm not in control mm-hmm. here. I don't want to be. Yeah. You know, and another thing too, with the the God thing is like, we do have to understand that there is a spiritual warfare happening and it's the same spiritual warfare that's been going on for centuries. However, it is, you know, it's very evident that it's happening. Oh, you and I can get into that for another hour and a half because (laughs) I believe that a hundred percent. And I can tell you that right now. You know, the, 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 the left and what's happening with all of that mm. politically, mm. where it's going is sick. Yeah. They're psychopaths. Uh, they will turn over the apple cart yeah. and scrounge for just a couple of apples mm-hmm. and they'll ruin everything for everyone just to prove a point. Yes. Um, and then you've got the conservatives on the other side who are mm-hmm. unfortunately lack the creativity to be effective. <laughs> and so it's very difficult what we're caught in, but I do believe there's a demonic you know, entity out there that is pushing this on our children, this mm-hmm. LGBTQ thing, like all this stuff that's being pushed is so crazy in the California schools, yeah. this trans movements and all these things. It's so sad for my stepdaughter, mm-hmm. you know, both of them who are in these schools in California. And, you know, it's so scary to think that if just they got the wrong thought in their head for a second and said, well, I identify as something different than what I am, mm-hmm. the teachers can then take control of that child and then help to administer hormones to change that child's sex without the parent consenting? That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And and we do have to be aware of like the duality and the division, right? Because it seems like we're being hit with so much division right now. If it's not COVID, then it's the war in Ukraine. Then it's the transgender movement. And then it's the movie Barbie. Like, it's like everybody's looking for reasons to fight and, and to, to separate. So we have to really, um, really watch that and be supportive of one another too. And 
And yeah, it's hard because I share the same values yeah. and it. Yeah. Well, I mean, Maui, look at this new thing. I mean, what is that? What really, I mean, we go to YouTube, we look at what happened, you mm -hmm. see the other side of it and you say, well, my goodness, there were so many protocols that were not followed. Mm -hmm. the, the fire chief was out of town that night. How convenient. Yes. Like there's so many things that happen that really make you question. Yes. Is this a is this an attack? Was this an attack? What what happened at nine eleven? And what what's going on here? You know, it, it really scares me. Um, and I think my wife is in the same place where we're like, who do you trust? Mm -hmm. You know, and and I, I feel you like on on a lot of that. It's it's a weird place to be because there is a spiritual warfare going on, mm -hmm. and it doesn't. I just don't see any end in sight. Yes. And that's why I think it's important right now to just really maintain a really deep spiritual practice, you know, stay in alignment with your values, build your communities, maybe even learn a little bit about homesteading via <laughs> yeah, plot yeah, of you're, land. You're, you're, you're not wrong there. That's a, that's a smart thing. You, you and my wife would get along famously. Um, <laughs> She is all about that. I she's, love her she's already. So afraid. She's speaking my language. Yeah, she's so afraid of of the you know, and not afraid. She's not. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say. Oh, she's a scared person. She's just very cognizant of the fact that we could end up in this one world currency very soon. They could take away cash. They could make these fifteen minute cities a reality. Yes. And you know, you're not allowed to travel. And if you don't get the vaccine, you're in big trouble. And we're going to come to your house with a gun, and we're going to collect taxes. Yes. I mean. A lot of this is 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 obviously frightening, and also, what do you think about this whole you know grocery store thing where they're trying to just like you know stop us from even being able to eat what we want to eat, and they're putting these prefabricated meats and these grown in a lab meats in 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 grocery stores? This is just the beginning. <laughs> this is just the beginning, and actually, I'm a living testimony of kind of what's going on with that too because. Um, I'm actually living in my RV right now, and I have been for two years because I was displaced during the Merritt floods. Um, first, we were hit with forest fires, um, evacuated twice, and then now the Merritt floods. So a lot of people lost their homes. And, and I think the same thing is happening over in Hawaii as well, is that there is no insurance. So like the middle class people are literally losing their shirt in these natural disasters. There's no insurance. They it's going to be incredibly difficult for people to rebuild. You know, they're losing their life savings here, and there's not a lot of. I mean, there is support, but not to the degree where they're going to, you know, rebuild their five hundred thousand dollar house again. You know, there's no insurance for any of that. So it's almost like the whole middle class is going to kind of get wiped out. So it'll either be the elite or or people just above poverty or below. People that they can easily abuse. Yes. Yes. And it's just starting, but yeah, we could definitely go down the rabbit hole on this one because my, all of my friends in my community, we share these same values and we're all prepping. Like we're all starting to prep. Okay. Well, good to know. Mm -hmm. Good to know because I don't, I don't disagree with you in one bit. I am super afraid that this is going to happen. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid for my kids too, mm -hmm. but beyond that, when you look at Hawaii and you look at the aid we're giving to the Ukraine, mm -hmm. Yep. I mean, how, how many millions of dollars were just sent there? And now we, how many, how much money did we give to each resident that lost their home? What was it? $700 yes. to help them get yeah. 
get them re get them placed somewhere what does seven hundred dollars do exactly. and if you look at the, the the living in hawaii i mean i think it's 80 percent higher than the standard of living in the rest of the 49 united states so yeah. you're looking at barely any cash at all it's like 300 dollars yeah. equivalent and they're also not upholding the insurance policies because they're saying there's zoning issues yeah. now you've got realtors coming in and saying we want to buy your land yeah isn't that ridiculous like so oh. i know and if that to me is just a huge red flag right there like what is going on you know, and mm -hmm. actually in BC right now too, a city of Kelowna is burning. Um, and that's the second fire now. Well, I mean, I think the last one was about 20 years ago, but it's devastating. People are losing their homes again, left, right, and center. Yeah. And, and we talk about mental health. What is this going to do? Yeah. Well, I mean, what are they doing to our mental health? They're making everybody walk on eggshells, live this really scary life. You know, back when COVID happened and I don't fault anybody for getting vaccinated. My parents did. Other people did. I said, no way. I I'm not no going to do it. Nope. And, you know, my wife was very hard about that to start. She has autoimmune disorders. Mm -hmm. She has celiac. She has potentially fibro, some other issues. And mm -hmm. she was like, no way. I know I'll die. If I get that vaccine, I will not survive. Wow. Good for you guys. I said, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And so I said, I'm not taking that. Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah. And luckily, during, it, and during COVID too, that was probably one of the hugest, like the, the division in families. I still know people to this day that are still not talking to their families because of that. You know, you got small business owners that lost their shirt, lost their shirt. Um, and so, yeah, that was a huge divider amongst people during the COVID. Mm hmm. You know, and for yeah. what? It didn't prove anything. It it didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work. They won't admit it. Mm -hmm. uh, you're more likely to get COVID if you did get the vaccine. Mm -hmm. I've seen vaccine injury to so many people that I know, women that were pregnant that got the yeah. vaccine, that their children are now injured. Yes. And very rarely will they admit it because they don't want to admit they've done something wrong, yeah. but they're in denial. And I get it. You know, it's it's sad. But, you know, I... I we have to stop listening. I think government shouldn't be in our business. I agree. You know? Yeah, I agree. Natural yeah. immunity. I mean, that's the best thing, really. And yes, okay, I get it. There was people that died. But now we're actually starting to see that on the opposite end of the spectrum with the vaccine injuries that people are dying now. Unexplainable deaths. Young people dying of cardiac arrest. I know in even just my circle, and I'm just one person, I have four people that have vaccine injuries. So, mm -hmm. and I'm just one person. So now you take your circle and then the people that you know and the people that they know, like this is, and I don't even think that we've even seen the the uh, the gist of it yet. I don't either because it's, you know, here's what's going to happen and, and you can, maybe I'm wrong, but I have three or four people that I know that have been injured. Yes. And I don't know what's going to happen to my parents. I really don't. They got, they were so happy about it. They're like, we got backs, we got boosted. Yeah. They were, I'm like, why? And, but they just were, they were going to do it. They believe the government. Now they don't, yeah. they've changed their tune, which is great. But what's going to happen is they're going to start sliding this COVID vax into um, the flu shots. They're going to start putting it in all the shots that they tell us to normally get. They're yeah. probably not going to tell us. 
And I actually heard, and maybe this is too conspiratorial, but that they're going to start giving us a vaccine and in the vaccine, it's going to cause an allergy to red meat. Oh, I in the would flu shot. not be surprised. Nothing surprises me at this point with uh, what they're up to as far as like meat grown in a pe Petri dish and, you know, and, and all these vaccinations and whatnot. And like, and even during COVID, like the mental health that happened, like the decline in mental health during the lockdowns and stuff. Like, for instance, just in my tiny little town of Merritt, which is what, maybe 8,000 people, liquor sales went up 40%. And then the children's helpline, the children's crisis helpline, went from 1.4 million calls to like 7 million calls. The text line went up 51%. You know what I mean? Because yeah. now we have these people that are trapped in behind four walls, can't get outside, not supposed to get fresh air, can't even go to the grocery store. Like, it was serious. And for what? Nothing. Yeah. Something that you can get, which I got, mm -hmm. naturally fought it, yes. and that's it. Yeah, me too. You know? Yeah. But like yeah. closing parks down where you're outside in the fresh air, like that didn't even make sense to me, you know? So, and California, we're going to see the consequences that. of this, like the mental health, like especially within the youth, when, when a child has experienced trauma or any type of abuse within the family dynamic, the chances of that child growing up into addictions dramatically increases. So we haven't even seen the consequences to any of this just yet. Unfiltered with Matt Farnsworth.